if you drink a mug or shot in a park, EPS will know. This week, we're brown bagging our beverages during the show since alcohol is now illegal, at least in parks. Plus, the Edmonton Police Service can now identify faces, CSI style. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 165, where if you didn't listen to the start of last week's episode, but listened to the remainder of the episode, when I have questions for you, reach out, send send me a tweet. But just for you, you special listener, we're going to plug Taproot's other podcast again, Bloom. We're on 165. Bloom is on episode two. And this is a new podcast all about innovation in the Edmonton region. That's not just tech, but innovation of all kinds hosted by Taproot's own Emily Rendell-Watson and Faiza Ramji. So check it out if you haven't already and subscribe wherever you get podcasts like this one. Speaking of innovation, we're trying something completely new on this episode, a rapid fire segment. Edmonton Public Schools will install HEPA filters in all classrooms at a cost of $6 million. After this week, Education Minister Adriana Lagrange learned in the Western Standard that HEPA filters are capable of removing NDP propaganda from airwaves. With the launch of Pure Fiber X, TELUS has brought the fastest residential internet speeds in Canada to Edmonton. With speeds up to 2.5 gigabits per second, that allows Edmontonians unlimited ability to engage and participate online. Whether that's loading up in mere seconds the first lecture in a MOOC you've signed up for but will never complete, or Instagram live streaming without a single buffering frame, maybe a heartfelt earnest reflection on your life to your one family member who accidentally clicked into that Instagram stream and is now uncomfortably forced to continue watching. You can do it all with TELUS. A new season of Serial was released this week, and you're still committing to listening to this podcast in your precious few minutes. I guess you're the joke this week, aren't you, dear listener? Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. We are happy once again to tell you about Edmonton Public Schools and their virtual open houses. Have a listen. Get ready to take the guesswork out of choosing a school. Go to an Edmonton Public Schools virtual open house. Ask your questions to learn about their schools and programs and find the one that feels right. All from the comfort of home. Find virtual event dates and learn how to make the most out of your online visit at openhouse.epsb.ca. Know before you go and feel confident and excited when you get there. You know the advantage of Pilots Mac? If they don't work out, you can just cancel them and no harm, no foul. Unless, of course, the pilot was viewed as a success in the eyes of the public and you still cancel it. I would say that's probably what happened this week when Community and Public Services Committee decided that drinking in parks, the, you know, casually enjoying a beer while having a picnic with your family, the thing that the rest of the world does without incident, that's not possible in Edmonton and it warrants further study. In true council fashion, they've asked for more information. So as you said, committee got a report this week on that pilot. Last summer, the city allowed you to consume alcoholic beverages at 47 different picnic areas. This was a pilot that ran from the end of May until early October. And as you pointed out, it was pretty widely praised. Lots of people thought this was a good idea. The biggest complaint I remember seeing about the whole pilot was those horrible, ridiculous, large signs that the city put up in all of the other parks to tell you that you couldn't drink there during this pilot. A survey that the city conducted after this pilot was done found that 53% of people had a positive experience and 50% wanted to see the program expand. 
So this report coming now to Community Services Committee with this information, I would have guessed, had we talked about it last week, Troy, that council would have said, success, this pilot showed us that people want this and there were no major incidents, let's move forward. But that's not what happened. Let's give fault where it's due. The pilot was a bad pilot. Like you said, the signs appearing in other parks. And I think to that effect, enforcement also ratcheted it up, ironically making it so that when we started allowing drinking in certain picnic areas, we actually prohibited it more rigorously in other areas. So, you know, there were plenty of complaints with the pilot. Yeah. But broadly, like we both kind of mentioned, this is not a complex problem. This is not an unsolved problem. Most of the world does this without incident. And in Edmonton, there was not much in the way of incident, which is why it was so baffling to me when it wasn't just eking by. It was a 1-4 vote uh, at Community and Public Services Committee to put this on ice and research it more. The lone counselor who was seeking to do something different was Councillor Michael Jans, and he had put forward a motion seeking to make the program permanent, which would be by itself a fairly rare event in Edmonton that we make a pilot project and it becomes permanent, Troy. But anyway, that failed, as you say, and Councillor Tang, Karen Tang, put forward uh, a mo- an alternative motion to uh, seek more information, and she said that we need to be really intentional and thoughtful about this. And Jans, for his part, said that I think we've gotten way out of scope about what this is actually about. Uh, And I find myself agreeing with Councillor Jans in this case, because, you know, as you pointed out, Edmonton is not a snowflake. We are not the first city in the world to do this. I actually really don't understand what they are studying over the next six months or whatever it's going to take until the report comes back. They did hear from some representatives from Alberta Health Services as well as a doctor at the University of Alberta. And uh, can you guess what they said, Troy? But think of the children? Well, kind of. They basically said what anybody in their position would say anytime anything related to alcohol comes up at city council, which is that there are health risks from moderate to heavy drinking. And that is true. And that there are alcohol-related harms and other issues that our community is facing. And they pointed out that, for example, in the first six months of the pandemic, admissions into hospitals due to alcohol hepatitis Uh, duplicated, went up dramatically. This is a story that was out a couple of weeks ago. That's true as well. If there's one thing we know about heavy alcoholism and alcoholism that requires hospitalization, it happens in public parks. Oh yeah, of course. I mean, I don't, I, I understand what they're saying and I respect their expertise on this and their position on this, but I really don't think council needed to say, you're right, we need to investigate further. It just, I don't understand what we're going to learn that we can't already understand from paying attention to the hundreds of other cities around the world where this is not a concern. I really appreciated Councillor Jans, though the comments came out a little bit frustrated. He called a spade a spade. He said, quote, it feels to me that if we don't want to do this, we should just vote not to do it and not send it off for further study, further cost, further engagement. Yeah. And Yeah, he's right. Left versus right and, you know, those party ideological lines don't tend to apply to municipal politics. Because if you were talking about progressivism and being more on the left and more in terms of progress, moving forward with something that more liberal-minded European nations do, that seems like a slam dunk for the progressives. And yet, voting against this motion, we had the likes of Karen Tang, Amarjeet Sohi, Uh, Also there were Tim Cartmel and Joanne Wright. 
I think it indicates something where we can't assume the results of these votes and we can't assume that our agendas are going to go through unimpeded because I don't know that everyone on council has the same view of what a progressive is. <laughs> I think that's a good observation, actually. People who describe themselves as progressive, I think, on council would do so for different reasons than probably you or I would describe them. And I've said it before, and I got a bit of an I told you so moment with everyone else. If I was to ascribe a uh, new counselor to old counselor, Karen Tang, I think reliably is going to be our Michael Walters of this council. The vote that campaigns progressively, but once you see it in chambers, perhaps the vote is not as progressive as you might have thought. There's a lot of hemming, hawing, studying, and equivocating. And so far, with this vote and with previous votes, I think I'm right on the money with that one. Okay, a prediction. We'll see if that comes true. Uh, I did have one other thing on this, Troy, and I was reminded when I was prepping this item that we also allow drinking at the zoo. You'll recall that they permitted that. And uh, I just want to, you know, basically say that while I'm arguing here in favor of allowing this alcohol consumption at these designated park sites, I don't really see a big concern with that. It doesn't mean that I think we need to drink everywhere, and I don't know that we actually need to have alcohol at the zoo. So there's that. If you're caught drinking in a park, though, uh, the EPS will be able to track you down uh, with any number of stealthily deployed drones or cameras or Big Brother telescreens. Maybe I'm going a little too far here, but this week we had talked about this in the past with Clearview AI and the EPS's plan to acquire some facial recognition software. And I recall we talked about it with a little bit of apprehension, but now it's really real. And DPS has purchased and has begun to use facial recognition software in Edmonton. Yes, this week they put out a news release uh, talking about how they've not adopted Clearview AI because that one is dangerous to touch now for any police department, but a system called NeoFace Reveal by the NEC Neck Corporation. It's used, it says, by hundreds of law enforcement agencies around the world. And the big selling feature of this one, I suppose, the difference between Clearview AI is that, well, that system was trained on social media and there was an uproar about the use of people's photos without their permission, that it's public. NeoFace Reveal is supposed to only work with the police services mugshot database both Edmonton and Calgary's, so that there's supposed to be less of an issue with privacy concerns. And the EPS has submitted a privacy impact assessment to the Privacy Commissioner of Alberta, and that review is underway. We don't know when that will be completed. But they're not the first to use this system. The first in Canada, actually, to adopt this was Calgary. So presumably, it's been okay to use in Calgary. This review will get approval for Edmonton as well. I think that presumably is a little bit frustrating to me in that I don't know that Calgary's review got the scrutiny it might have deserved. It was also done in 2014, right? So this was when privacy concerns were not as much on everybody's radar as they are today. Okay, let's set aside the privacy implications of this and, you know, the big brother aspect of it all. If the police is violating my privacy, I want it to at least be effective, this facial recognition data set, it's only trained on mugshots, so it only has data from offenders that EPS has already taken in into the system and uh, photographed well 
and that, you know, their face hasn't changed measurably from the mugshot. Like, I understand how AI works. You need a pretty decently large training set. So one photo of each person isn't going to be reliable enough to get a match from a grainy surveillance video. So the company would say that they can. They argue that the selling feature of this NeoFace reveal system is that it can match low resolution face images. It says down to 24 pixels between the eyes. And it says it outmatches, outperforms all other recognition systems in matching accuracy. It can also do a database and it can also connect to live streams. The Edmonton Police Service has said they are only using it with the database. They are not going to use it over live feeds or social media. But the system can can do that. And the company argues it can be fairly accurate with, you know, very poor data. Okay. I would say a lot of things in the marketing materials for my company as well. I think there's a huge citation needed on that. But even accepting the premise that they can, it comes down to a science question for me. I understand that if you have a grainy video image and you're using AI to upscale it and you're using AI to determine lost information between the two pixels, that means a computer is making a guess. And you have seen in the past courtroom absolute gong shows with expert testimony and forensic evidence that isn't truly evidence at all. Fingerprints are the best example of this. Fingerprints are not a trained science, but yet we treat it like a trained science with CSI. It's as much an art form of the analyzer as it is, you know, actually matching the individual components of a fingerprint that identify things. So I do have pretty significant fear that a private company put in their marketing material that they can identify using just a mugshot, a grainy, within 24 pixel security camera footage, and that's going to incarcerate someone. I, I have concerns with that. Yeah, no, I do as well. And don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to defend the company. And in, and in fact, I was curious about this. So I did some research and, uh, and I found a couple of interesting things, Troy. So one is that uh, there have been reviews of this software, as you can imagine, by other organizations around the world because it is in use by dozens or maybe hundreds of other police forces and other uh, government agencies. And the first thing to point out is that, so even leaving aside the science part that you just talked about with the AI, which is probably true as well, one of the reports I found said this, quote, there remains concerns about the use of facial recognition technology as grounds for arrest or harassment and about the nature of mugshot databases grounded in over-policing of racialized minorities. This is, as you and I have talked about on the show before, a little bit of the garbage in, garbage out problem. And I mean that in if you don't have a very good representative data set to start with, you're going to get biased results on the outside. So there's a concern here that the folks who are in those mugshot databases are going to be predominantly non-white due to the nature of our systemically problematic police services. The other thing that I found that was quite interesting is that there was a review done of this system by the Metropolitan Police and South Wales Police in the United Kingdom. And they found that facial recognition software from this company was found to produce inaccurate matches 91 to 98% of the time. That's a high number. Okay, if we think about the gold standard in AI and natural image processing, Google is right up there. Google is very good at this job. But I think you'll remember there was quite famously Google's facial recognition AI 
was very bad at differentiating between black people. Yes. It was very good with white faces, but with racial minorities, suddenly it became very unreliable. Now, if Google is unable to do that by violating every single one of our privacies and looking at every piece of our data and using that on a massive training set, how is this random company that, we'll get to price in a sec, that is charging police services sub $1 million for their software going to compete with Google's multi-billion dollar R&D budget and do a better job. They're not, as clearly evidenced by the 91% number. (laughs) Yeah, Facebook, Google, Amazon, all of these companies have huge, huge research budgets have been working on this problem, facial recognition, image recognition for years and have, in many cases, had to pull things back or make significant changes, manual changes, because of the concerns. And so this is, you know, one of the big problems. Even if they've figured out how to develop a good algorithm, that algorithm needs to be trained. And if it's trained on data sets that were produced by police services that focus on racial minorities, then that's, you know, going to cause a problem here as well. Okay, so I alluded to this earlier. What's this costing us? Because we're paying for it, of course. Well... We don't know because we don't know anything about the police budget. We don't know what they spend their money on. We have no breakdown of where they spend their money, and we're not allowed to audit them, evidently, as we talked about last week. But I did find a couple of uh, other police services and the amounts of money that they have spent for this system. So Calgary, I mentioned, was the first in Canada to use this. But Toronto, the Toronto Police Service, also uh, purchased uh, uh, the system from from NEC, and they spent in 2018 four hundred and fifty one thousand dollars plus on top of that annual maintenance and support costs. And they had a contract for five years, so till twenty twenty three. So they are still paying for that software. I also found the Arizona Department of Transportation is another government agency that has looked at using the software. They spent a million dollars American to upgrade to the newest version. And then they spend anywhere from two hundred to $360,000 a year US in hosting and maintenance costs. So it's not a cheap system. It's very easy when we talk about facial recognition and police services to go the route of, oh, this is violating my privacy. This is big brother. This is not a realm we want to go down. The slippery slope police surveillance is not something that we want in a free society. Those arguments are all very easy to make, but I think they're fundamentally the wrong argument to make here. The EPS are using garbage that will lead to bad arrests. That's a problem. Let's address that because if we prohibit the EPS from using garbage things that lead to racist bad arrests, this software will be naturally precluded by that requirement. And that solves it all. We should just, uh, before we move on, point out, you know, what the police themselves have, have said about this. And Should we? Well, just to be <laughs> fair, they, they did, as you point out, really go hard on the privacy angle. They talked about how only a select group of trained technicians will get to use this technology. They said it was implemented in full compliance with FOIP. They really, you know, I guess took a lesson from the Clearview scandal and, and wanted to make sure that people know that this is not using their private information without their consent, or at least that's what they're saying. They talked about, you know, using a system like this a few years ago. Uh, the, the Edmonton Police Service has been looking into facial recognition for a number of years. So they're following through on something they they said they would do here. They also said that they've put in, 
you know, proper safeguards, policies and protections. And just because there's a match doesn't mean anything automatically happens. It won't be used for surveillance. They've got this small team of people and they will then use it as an, a data point to decide how to go forward. All of that said, I think your your concerns and your criticisms are very valid. This week, Mayor Sohi also levied some pretty valid concerns uh, against the provincial government. Of course, we're not going to talk about it on the podcast, but there was some honking and there was some border blocking that was going on this week. These people caused a snafu and, in fact, lost the Conservative Party of Canada, their leader. So kudos to you all. But... One of the things that has happened this week is the right side of the provincial government has been pushing for a change in restrictions. We were hearing, ah, you know, it might be at the end of March, and now it's at the end of February. And then as recently as yesterday, the UCP, the caucus themselves, has put out a statement saying within four days, we could expect the restriction exemption program to be gone. A little bit concerning to not only myself, but Edmonton Mayor Amarjeet Sohi, who is now urging the province not to remove COVID-19 restrictions too soon and too fast. Yeah, he talked about, he put out a statement today and talked to the media about it. He said, we have a collective responsibility to do what we can to keep everyone safe. And he, as you say, argues that the government is moving too quickly. I mean, Premier Jason Kenney had said by the end of February, and that already felt quick. So to then have the caucus be pushing for four days is is kind of insane. He did say that he would consider and look at implementing their own measures, you know, insofar as the city has the authority to do that. So they could continue to keep their mask bylaw and things like that in place. But the province eliminating their restrictions across the province really causes a problem for any municipality that wants to do something different within their borders, because as we've just seen, hundreds of people came into our city from other places uh, where the rules are going to be different. So that's a that's a big problem. And of course, businesses now are back into that situation of feeling really uncertain about what to do now. Do they continue with indoor dining without the rep if they want to keep doing the, the vaccine passport program? Can they? Does the app still work? Will it be removed? Uh, there's now an incredible amount of uncertainty that this decision or this push has has led to. And of course, you alluded to it, the big losers in this situation Aside from our healthcare system, sorry nurses, you are about to get a deluge of sick people. It's really small business owners that are going to be bearing the brunt of the negativity here because if you don't implement a vaccine exemption program, you're going to lose a lot of business from Edmontonians. I, I know myself, I am not going to an indoor dining restaurant without vaccine requirements indoors. It's just, it's not going to happen. On the flip side, we have seen how angry and how, in cases, violent and disruptive people who believe they shouldn't get a vaccine can be in public spaces that require them. So a business saying, we know better than the government, we're going to require vaccines, they're going to get a lot of vitriol, they're going to get a lot of abuse and they might get violence or vandalism. So there's really no good good solution in that situation, except for the provincial government protecting its citizens and following the science. Dr. Hinshaw was asked whether she would eat at a restaurant without the restrictions exemption program. And she didn't answer the question. She just said she hasn't eaten indoors at a restaurant in two years since the pandemic started. Chris Harvey is the co-chair of the Edmonton Independent Hospitality Community. And he pointed out 
that not only is it too early to be lifting these restrictions, but what if what happened in the summer happens again, where we had this reopening and then there was another huge wave of cases across the province and then new restrictions have to come back again. At every step in this pandemic, instead of doubling down to try and get to zero, as we've seen other jurisdictions around the world do, or uh, try to bring a manageable amount of load into our healthcare system, we've opened things back up again and had to reintroduce restrictions at later points. So not even just the uncertainty about this moment, but the uncertainty about you know, whether we're going to have to re-implement new restriction programs in the future is not good for business. There's a problem with that argument, though, because if you look at every other wave in the pandemic, we would, you know, spike up, add restrictions and see our caseload drop and get to a manageable state and then, you know, open up again, causing another spike. That's not what's happening here because we haven't materially dropped in terms of cases, in terms of hospitalization. We're still at the peak. So maybe that's the big brain play here. It's, well, if in history, if restrictions caused a drop and then reopening caused an increase, what if you just reopen at the top of the peak? <laughs> maybe maybe that's a solution. And that's, that's a UCP level solution that I expect from this government. <laughs> Yeah, you're right. The uh, prediction was that we would get to something like 1,500 hospital ca- hospitalizations. We are now almost at 1,600 or perhaps over, actually, because it keeps getting revised upward. Thankfully, intensive care cases haven't gone up quite as much. But you're right. This is not you know, on the downswing yet. There are still a significant number of both people getting sick and people dying in our province every day. You mentioned going places, and that's what's exceptionally frustrating to me. I love winter in Alberta, because you're a quick jaunt from the mountains. But when I was shopping around for ski hills that I wanted to go down this year, uh, only one in Alberta, Sunshine Village in Banff, was doing a full vaccine mandate for the entire hill, ostensibly because they have the gondola to get up to the hill. But Mm -hmm. in order to ski at Sunshine, you needed to be vaccinated. And that was so freeing because I hate skiing with a mask because I have glasses and goggles. Fog is a very, very tough situation when you have to put on the cloth mask or the medical mask at the lift lineup. So I was very happy to be outdoors in the open air, knowing that everyone around me is vaccinated and that it's a relatively safe environment. Mm -hmm. If you're Sunshine Village and you're this world-class ski resort in the province of Alberta, and the government says you no longer need to require vaccines, for people that are attending your resort. Is there any situation where you as a ski resort operator continue to require vaccines? I don't see one, but it means I'm not going to go skiing again this winter. Yeah, I guess it's a question of how many people are there like you versus how many people would go to that hill if they weren't required to show the vaccine passport, right? And in the absence of good information about that, the simplest thing to do is not incur the expenses associated with enforcing it, probably. Absolutely. And we're going to see this across the board where businesses are going to be put in a rock and a hard place and not have the data to actually make a decision. So they opt to kind of just not decide at all, which is in effect deciding for no mandate whatsoever. So he wasn't only requesting that uh, we keep health restrictions in place. Budget is coming up in the province. And, you know, as one of the big city mayors in the city of Edmonton, Amarjeet Sohi had requests for the government for the budget. And you covered that this week. Yeah, well, this was last week, actually, end of last week that um, the mayor put out his four bare minimum needs 
that the city has going into the provincial budget later this month. And I started reading this and was kind of curious to know, like of all of the things that the city might need from the province, I'm sure that's a huge long list. How did how would they pare that down? What would they choose? They have a total ask of about $39 million, which isn't a huge amount of money really, given how much we spend on things in the city. But I want to read for you, Troy, uh, what Post Media reported were the top four things that Amarjeet Sohi said we needed. Okay. Funding for supportive housing. Yep. Transit operations. Sure. Downtown recovery. Yep. Yeah, maybe. And the city's 2026 FIFA World Cup bid. Mac, one of those things doesn't <laughs> sound like the others. <laughs> Yeah, I was kind of surprised to see the FIFA World Cup bid there. I know that soccer is a big deal right now. The Canadian men's team is in first place. One more win, I think, in the next four games, and we basically guarantee punch our ticket to the to the World Cup. Like that's all that's all good. That's amazing. But of all of the priorities that the city has, of all of the things that we need the province to fund, FIFA? <laughs> I, I was kind of surprised by that. You know, we all have skepticism about the math of economic activity spurred by an international event. But whether or not you disagree with that, I think it is very, very peculiar and a bit off-putting to place that as a critical ask in a budget that's based on pandemic recovery. You know, we need to get people off the streets with supportive housing. We need to make sure that those that are vulnerable in our city can move around and can be active within our city with good transit. And we need to give some money to a corrupt organization to host some footy ball. You know, it it doesn't quite track. No, not at all. I mean, this is a nine-page document. I'm sure there are other requests in there. But to have the mayor highlight those four and to highlight the World Cup bid, which by the way, there is no funding dollar attached to. We know they want $5 million for the downtown plan, for instance. We know they want $8.9 million for wraparound and social supports, for supportive housing units. We don't know how much they're planning to spend or would like the province to spend on this World Cup bid. And it's in 2026. So I don't buy the argument that this is part of our economic recovery from the pandemic. Yeah, of course that FIFA request, that can wait till 2026 or at least a couple of years. One thing that's a need right now though, that's for mentors with the Boys and Girls Club and Big Brothers Big Sisters of Edmonton area, also called the BGC Bigs. You can consider sharing your time with a young person. They want to hear your stories. Over the past year, BGC Bigs heard from young people that having a mentor means they are less likely to have anxiety, feel isolated or struggle with their mental health. But there are over 600 young people waiting for a mentor in their lives today. There's currently a need for mentors in the Big Brothers, Big Sisters, Big Siblings program in school for our youth and care program and for the new PRISM program, which supports 2S LGBTQ plus young people. There's also a need for virtual tutors who can support young people as they transition back to school and are dealing with a learning loss over the past two years. You can join BGC Bigs for virtual coffee or apply now at bgcbigs.ca or just Google BGC Bigs Edmonton. That's all for this week, Mac. We did it. Back on track. Slightly shorter episode. Feels good. It does. But we can only feel good for so long before uh, Jason Kenny gives us all COVID. So look forward to that. Uh, we'll update you if we've both got the vid next week. Until then, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking, Speaking Municipally. Municipally.